Okay, I think everybody is here. Thanks for joining everyone. Uh, I, as usual, do not have any announcements this evening. So, without further ado, Robert has another lesson for us. All right. Well, like we have been doing week after week, let's start with the scripture reading. I tell you the solemn truth. The one who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The doorkeeper opens the door for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own sheep out, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they recognize his voice. They will never follow a stranger, but will run away from him, because they do not recognize the stranger's voice. Jesus told them this parable, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, I tell you the solemn truth, I am the door for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved, and he will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, who is not a shepherd and does not own sheep, sees the wolf coming and abandons the sheep and runs away. So the wolf attacks the sheep and scatters them. Because he is a hired hand and not concerned about the sheep, he runs away. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that do not come from this sheepfold. I must bring them too, and they will listen to my voice, so that there will be one flock and one shepherd. This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, so that I may take it back again. No one takes it away from me, but I lay it down of my own free will. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it back again. This commandment I received from my Father. Another sharp division took place among the Jewish people because of these words. Many of them were saying, He is possessed by a demon and has lost his mind. Why do you listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of someone possessed by a demon. A demon cannot cause the blind to see, can it? Then came the Feast of the Dedication in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple area in Solomon's portico. The Jewish leaders surrounded him and said, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus replied, I told you, and you do not believe. The deeds I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you refuse to believe, because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them from my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one can snatch them from my Father's hand. The Father and I are one. The Jewish leaders picked up rocks again to stone him to death. Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good deeds from the Father. For which one of them are you going to stone me? The Jewish leaders replied, We are not going to stone you for a good deed, but for blasphemy, because you, a man, are claiming to be God. Jesus answered, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If those people to whom the word of God came were called gods, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say about the one whom the Father set apart and sent into the world, You are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not perform the deeds of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, even if you do not believe me, believe the deeds, so that you may come to know and understand 
that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Then they attempted again to seize him, but he escaped their clutches. Jesus went back across the Jordan River again to the place where John had been baptizing at an earlier time, and he stayed there. Many came to him and began to say, John performed no miraculous sign, but everything John said about this man was true. And many believed in Jesus there. The Gospel of John, Chapter 10. All right. Well, let's get to the main themes of the text. Now, really, before I get into this text, we need to talk about sheep and shepherds. And I know that sounds kind of funny, kind of weird, but it is very important for this text. So first, let's just discuss uh, sheep briefly. Uh, of course, they were very valuable in the ancient world, just like they are valuable today. Um, but, you know, particularly back in the day, they would have been valuable because people would get wool from them, but also meat, milk that, would, that was often turned into cheese and leather. Um, which could be used for a number of things, but especially if you got the whole skin of the animal, you would turn it into a sort of canteen that could be used to carry liquids. Think of wineskins when the Bible mentions that. So many people kept sheep. In fact, most households would have had sheep. Now, sheep and goats were and they still are, I suppose, very smart. They can learn somebody's voice and follow the shepherd just by the sound of his voice, or also at the time, their pipe, which was some kind of uh, instrument, like musical instrument. I I tried looking up some like pictures or maybe recordings to see what that pipe would have sounded like. I didn't find anything that I, I felt was all that reliable, so I didn't share it on the blog, but I'm sure that you can do your own research on that. But uh, sheep could follow somebody's voice. This really matters. Think of your dog nowadays. Just like your dog knows you, your dog can be taught several commands. Uh, sheep can do the same. Um, this, by the way, you don't have to rely just on the scripture for this. Actually, we can look at modern examples. If you look at shepherds in, I don't know, somewhere in Pakistan or something like that, they uh, they can lead sheep simply by issuing a command, a verbal command, about once every minute or so, the sheep will follow them. Okay. Again, this is very relevant for this passage, so just bear with me as we talk about it. Okay, now let's talk about shepherds uh, real quick. Shepherds are all over the Old Testament, right? The big figures in the Old Testament, they were shepherds, at least for some period of their lives. For example, Moses was a shepherd for a while. David was a shepherd for a while, and it doesn't get any better than Moses and David, right? I suppose Abraham, who was also a shepherd, by the way, I just didn't put the citation um, in the uh, in the text, but all 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 the big guys they were shepherds. Yet, despite that fact, it seems that at Jesus' time, shepherds, as in their profession, they had fallen in disrepute, particularly with the elite. There are several texts, not only from the Gentile world, but also from the Jewish world that describe shepherds in a very negative light, referring to them as criminals, even murderers. Um, in fact, we have Jewish texts that describe shepherds as being um, dishonorable, just like tax collectors. 
And you might not know this. I, I don't think I've discussed tax collectors because they don't really come up in the Gospel of John. But uh, tax collectors in the Jewish world, they were collecting taxes for the Romans. So they were like the lowest of the low, right? They were hated by the Jewish people and, and shepherds are compared to them. In fact, uh, not only that, but uh, there was kind of this common adage or whatever that the only class of people that was lower than peasants was shepherds. Now, again, this was this was the reputation shepherds had among the elite. That was probably not the case among the people because the norm, the, you know, the common people, many of them were shepherds. Now, why do I even bring this up? This doesn't really change the theological meaning of the text at all. But in, in the quote-unquote scene that we're reading, Jesus is arguing with the religious elite when Jesus brings up this example of the shepherds. Um, you know, they're probably quite turned off by this imagery. They're thinking, oh my goodness, here comes this like country bumpkin talking about shepherds. Um, well, uh, now, uh, Jesus, of course, uses shepherds in a very positive light just like the Old Testament does. Okay, so, so this is very much in keeping with the Old Testament tradition. Okay. Another little factoid that we need to really understand the text is the idea of the sheepfold or just the fold, right? The thing that you keep the sheep in. And the text seems to shift between two different kinds of folds uh, very quickly. And we might miss this. So I want to describe at least these two scenes in some detail, and then I'll compare them to the biblical text. Sometimes the sheep were kept, quote unquote, at home. What I, what I mean by that is that many households in ancient times, they had a, a, a yard, a front and backyard that would have been surrounded by a wall, a fairly tall wall. Now, of course, there would be exceptions, you know, this depending on the household. But generally speaking, it would have been a tall wall that had a door. Well, keep that in mind because Jesus will refer to that. But if you had a very large flock of, of sheep, then you would not keep it at home, right? You had to take it out to pasture. And shepherds with the sheep, they would travel all over the country. Uh, in the warmer months, they may go up to the mountains. In the colder months, they would take the sheep down to the valleys. And of course, depending on rain and the quality of the grass and all that, they may have to move around from location to location. Well, where did they keep the sheep at night? Sometimes they had these kind of temporary summer sheepfolds that would have been made of maybe uh, a, a rather short stone structure like a stone wall that then on top of that had briars had you know thorny bushes and those structures out in the field would not have a door so what would the shepherd do the shepherd would sleep across the opening right that that quote unquote was the door but there was no actual door so the, the shepherd would sleep across that so if any animal or person i suppose would would want to get in or out of that enclosure, they would have to go through the shepherd. Again, keep that scene in mind because it will come up here in just a minute. Now, what were some of the dangers that a shepherd might face? Well, uh, thieves and robbers, of course, were very common at the time. 
there is technically a distinction between a thief and a robber, but that distinction does not seem to matter for this passage. So I'm not going to spend any time on that. But, you know, thieves, generally, they broke into your home, particularly at night. And robbers, they, assault, they assaulted you outside of your home, probably during the day. And if you're thinking, why? <laughs> but this distinction, actually, if you go back to the Old Testament, it, it's very similar to what our law used to be till maybe, I don't know, 40, 30 years ago. Uh, right? Breaking and entering is treated very severely in the law because especially if it's breaking and entering into a home, particularly at night, because it is assumed that the assailant is ready to do violence to whoever is in the dwelling, um, that's treated much more severely than someone just like pickpocketing you or taking something out of your car or something like that. Okay. But again, that, that difference doesn't seem to matter in, in the current passage. So, so we don't have to pull up this Old Testament. Uh, scriptures or any of that. Okay. Um, but it is important that robbers were actually quite dangerous. They may not just take the sheep, but they might kill the shepherd. And then of course you had the danger of wolves and lions. Now lions don't appear in this text, but they also would have been common at the time. And okay? um, as you might expect, words like thieves and robbers were also used in non-literal ways to refer, for example, to politicians who were exploiting the people or Gentile nations that were oppressing the Jews. Okay. And the last bit of context, and I'm, I'm, again, I apologize. I know this is a lot of context, but then the rest of the passage will go rather quickly. Is Ezekiel chapter 34. I'm going to read just like the first two paragraphs. I, I quote it more on the blog in case you're interested, but I want to give you a sense of this prophecy that is found in Ezekiel because it clearly is the main reference, the main allusion that uh, Christ is making in John chapter 10. So again, I'll read a couple of paragraphs. The Lord's message came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say to them, to the shepherds, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the choice animals, but you do not feed the sheep. You have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays, or sought the lost. But with force and harshness, you have ruled over them. They were scattered because they had no shepherd and they became food for every wild beast. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over the entire face of the earth with no one looking or searching for them. Therefore, you shepherds, listen to the Lord's message. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, my sheep have become prey and have become food for all the wild beasts. There was no shepherd, and my shepherds did not search for my flock that fed themselves and did not feed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, listen to the Lord's message. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I am against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from their hand. I will no longer let them be shepherds. The shepherds will not feed themselves anymore. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths so that they will no longer be food for them. Okay. So, this is this is very important context because as Jesus is saying the things that he is saying in John chapter 10, definitely the religious elite and perhaps everybody there has these 
images, right? This text in their in their heads. It's like if I said, you know, I have the higher ground. Okay, you're immediately thinking Star Wars, right? Even if I'm not really making some Star Wars argument, that image kind of comes to your head. Or if I were to say the phrase more power, okay, again, you're thinking Star Wars. It is important for us to realize that the audience here is probably connecting some dots that we might not because we're not as familiar with the Old Testament. Okay, with all that background in mind, let's uh, start looking at the text that we read today. And I have one last side note, this idea of a parable. You may have heard that in the Gospel of John, there are no parables. And then you read John chapter 10, and it says, here's a parable. You might be thinking, why would people say that? What is going on here? Well, there's two reasons for that. One, in the Gospel of John, the parables are shorter, and they don't have the same like, kind of structure as they do in the other Gospels. They're also not as common, if there are any. Um, and also the word that John uses for parable is actually slightly different in the Greek, or rather what I should say, it is a different word in the Greek than the word for parable used in the other Gospels. Um, and John is paromian, and in the other Gospels, it is parabolic. Okay? Now, I, I don't want to spend too much time on this unless somebody really has a question on the matter, but I, I fully disagree, actually, with this idea that there are no parables in John. I think that there are. I think that this is an example. I think the structure is actually the same. Sure, they're not as lengthy, um, and, and John uses a different word, but I, I, don't, I don't really think that that is an accurate description of John's gospel. But with that said, I will refer to this as a parable, just like John chapter 10 does, um, and that's that. Okay. Well, so... Notice the first few verses in the chapter uh, when Jesus says, I tell you the solemn truth, the one who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs, by climbs in some other way, is a thief and a robber. Okay, so what kind of scene does Jesus have in mind? In those first few verses, it seems like Jesus is envisioning this scene of keeping the sheep at home. Again, quote unquote, at home, right? Out in the, in the yard where there would have been tall walls and there would actually be a door. And there is a doorkeeper. And the point of this is that a real member of the household can just enter through the door. The doorkeeper recognizes him and lets him in. But somebody who is not a member of the household cannot enter through the door. They have to sneak in. They have to climb over those walls and get in like a robber or a thief. So. What is the theological significance of this? And really, this is, uh, this is quite powerful, both what it says about Jesus and what it says about the religious, the religious leaders. Um, it is saying that Jesus belongs here, right? This is his household. Now, the parable doesn't come out and say he's the leader of the household. We, of course, could infer that from the rest of the Gospel of John. But if we really just stick to the parable itself, it doesn't say he's the leader, but it clearly makes the point that he, that Jesus is a member of the household. So he can just walk up to the door and say, hey, it's me, let me in. The religious leaders, on the other hand, cannot make that claim. So they have to sneak in. Now, why is this so powerful? 
because uh, Jesus is very much leaving them out, right? Leaving them out of God's family. Remember, they very much saw themselves as children of God because they were descendants of Abraham. And this parable, they are not. They are outside the family, outside the household. And then we see uh, bidirectional familiarity in this, in this parable. Of course, Jesus knows his own home, right? Jesus knows his household. Um, but not only that, his household, in this case, the sheep and the doorkeeper, they recognize him. Okay? There, there is this sense then that those who belong to God, they recognize Jesus' Jesus' words and his teachings, and they will not be fooled by these other uh, fake messiahs, fake teachers, you know. Um, now this familiarity will repeat itself actually with greater intensity as we go along. Yeah. Now here's the twist. In verse seven, it seems like the same image is carrying over. But I think, and this is not just my thought, many, many scholars would, would agree on this. In fact, this is not my original thought by any stretch. But when you get to verse 7, the image actually changes. It says, therefore, you shepherds, listen to the Lord's message. Um, wait, sorry, I'm reading off of the Old Testament. <laughs> sorry, wrong text. Um, so Jesus said again, I tell you the solemn truth. I am the door for the sheep. Notice that in verses 1, through six, there's a doorkeeper, and the doorkeeper allows Jesus to come in. In verse seven, Jesus is the door. Now, why would that be? Because it seems that we have changed the imagery now to this idea of keeping sheep out in the field where you have a temporary shelter of some kind, and the shepherd, it, it, the shepherd is sleeping across the opening to the shelter. So quite literally, the shepherd is the door. Okay. And I think if you keep that in mind, then his words make perfect sense when he says, I am the door. And essentially all who want to get into the sheepfold the right way have to come through me. And people who don't come in the right way, people who sneak in, um, you know, they, they jump over the wall, sneak through the briars, whatever. They are thieves and robbers. Okay. So um, what, what is the message of this parable? Well, the only way to be part of the fold, you know, to properly be part of the fold, to truly be in um, God's family is to go through Jesus, right? The right way. Um, anybody else who, gets, who tries to get in a different way and think about what the what the Pharisees would have thought. They thought they were getting in because they were the descendants of Abraham. I'm saying, nope, that makes you nothing but a robber. There's one way, and it is through Jesus. Now, this part of the parable is more, it's even more negative towards the robbers who are sneaking in, right? Because it actually says, you come in to destroy and to kill. And I, the good shepherd, Jesus, I am here to give life. So it, it, is, it is painting the Pharisees in a very negative light that they're not just like mistaken, you know, they're not just these like 
innocently mistaken people, they actually have bad intentions. Okay? They're actually uh, trying to destroy and harm the people of God. So uh, again, this parable, as it, go as it goes along, is actually very powerful about what it's saying about Jesus and the religious leaders. Well, then um, it the 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 parable kind of shifts again into this idea of how the sheep and the shepherd know each other and how that compares with Jesus knowing God. I think that this is this is very powerful and in, in you know we read it so quickly in the text that we just move on. Um, but notice that it says that um, the the way that the sheep and the shepherd know each other, it is like the way that the son knows the father and the father knows the son. Now, of course, if if you are even kind of remotely familiar with Christian theology, we believe that the son, the father, and the Holy Spirit, they are one being. They are one God. Okay? So they are, they have a level of closeness. <laughs> they have like the, the maximum level of closeness, if 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 you want to put it that way. Um, and by no means am I implying that the sheep and the shepherd become one being in that sense. Uh, you know, that would be all sorts of heretical and raise a number of issues. No, no. But the fact that Jesus would even say that, that, that Jesus would say, believers will know me like I know the Father and the Father knows me. I mean, it implies a level of intimacy between believers and Jesus that simply cannot be overstated. In fact, if you ever wanted to get mystical, I this would be the place, right? <laughs> this is the place. Um, and um, and I, I'm not trying here to, to get weird or whatever, but but I mean, I do think that Christianity, in a sense, is, is um, I, I mean, I think it could properly be described as quite mystical in, in, term, in some ways, um, without, without throwing out all, uh, you know, kind of logical thinking or, or what have you. Um, now, you might be wondering, how can this even happen? How can the sheep and the shepherd have this level of closeness? And I think we find this later on, I believe it's in chapter 14, um, because Jesus says, I will send you the Holy Spirit, right? So like, we will have God in us, God with us. Um, and because of that, we have been brought into communion with God. We have this incredibly close, um, you know, connection. Um, we also see this or something like this alluded to in the Old Testament. Like if you look at um, Jeremiah 24, 7, it says the following. I will give them the desire to acknowledge that I am the Lord. I will be their God and they will be my people for they will wholeheartedly return to me. Why do I bring this up? The, the, the history or the story of the Bible is what I, what I meant to say. The story of the Bible, it is a story of division and then reunion, right? In, in the garden, there is a division. Uh, man and woman, they are separated from God. And the rest of the story, the rest of the Bible is trying to over, overcome that chasm that's been created. And notice that the way that Jesus is talking here, it, th this chasm is not only overcome in the sense that God finds us sinless through Jesus' sacrifice. And that certainly is a huge part of the story. I'm not attacking that in any way. But not just that, 
the people of God will actually wholeheartedly want God. There is this, this, this peace between man and God, finally, through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And the last part of the parable talks about another sheepfold, another group of sheep that will be united with the current group of sheep. <laughs> well, I, you know, I think when you read the text, it is it's pretty clear. Um, not well, not just in this text, but throughout the Gospel of John, that this other sheepfold is talking about Gentiles, about us. Well, assuming that most of the listeners here are are not Jewish, but the non-Jewish people, essentially that this message of hope is going out to the whole world. Now, just because I I, I want to do my homework and I don't just want to assume things, let's run through the options real quick. This other sheepfold could be the Northern Kingdom, right? Which at the time would have been Samaria. So maybe, again, this is not what I believe, but just want to explain it. Maybe Jesus is saying, I'm finally going to unite the Southern Kingdom, which was Judah, which is at the time of Jesus, what we would call Israel, and the Northern Kingdom, but at his time would have been Samaria. Um, the other option is that Jesus is saying, I am going to bring back all the diaspora Jews. Right, the Jews that have been scattered throughout the nations. Um, you could think that because then in chapter 11, when the high priest, not Jesus, but the high priest speaks of the scattered children, he's obviously talking about the diaspora Jews. Um, and um, there's a couple of other reasons you could throw in there, I guess, if you wanted to support that. But I think really all that doesn't withstand criticism. I think by far the better view is the fact that this other sheepfold is the rest of the world, is the Gentiles. Um, why? Number one, he's talking about uh, a different uh, sheepfold, and, I, and I'm trying to remember, oh yeah, that do not come from the sheepfold. That's actually what he says. And both the Northern Kingdom and the Diaspora Jews come from the same sheepfold. They're just scattered, but they're, they don't come from a different sheepfold. So I don't really think it makes sense just in a prima facie case of the text. Um, but also, Jesus has already alluded about the mission to the Gentiles throughout this gospel. Um, and we see that the prophecies in the Old Testament that, that talk about these things in the New Testament, they, they consistently get interpreted as meaning that this message is going out to the world and this offer is being brought to the Gentiles. Uh, finally, I think that this is simply the interpretation that the New Testament takes, uh, particularly in Romans eleven seventeen. This is a book that we have not read. Of course, it comes later on in the New Testament and is written by Paul. But Paul uses what I would call an identical image in the sense of its meaning. He uses the idea of Israel being an olive tree and the Gentiles being uh, a wild olive branches that are grafted into the tree. Okay, so you have one tree, and then people from another tree are grafted into the one. Well, that's effectively identical to saying you have one sheepfold, and you have sheep from a different one that are included in it. Okay, so this is great news for the world. You know, uh, Jesus is not only here to become the shepherd of the Jews but to become the shepherd of all that will come to him, including the Gentiles, including us.
Then we have a change of setting. This is the first time that we really have a change of setting all the way back to chapter seven. Right? Like I said last time, chapter seven, eight, nine, and 10, up to this point, they are one scene, so to speak. And now we have changed to the Feast of Dedication, which nowadays we call Hanukkah. Um, well, and they, well, no, they wouldn't have referred to it as such back then because this comes from a transliteration of a Greek word and blah, blah, blah. We don't have to get into that. But at any rate, um, this Feast of Dedication is Hanukkah. Let me give you the, the setting briefly, and then we will talk about the discussion that happens there. Hanukkah is actually an extra biblical feast. What I mean by that is this feast is not taught, it's not commanded in the Old Testament. Where does it come from? It comes from the intertestamental period. When I say that, I mean that's the period between the last book in the Old Testament and the first book in the New Testament. You have a few centuries there. And during that time, the temple in Jerusalem had been desecrated. It was being used for pagan worship. And then there's the Maccabean uh, rebellion where they take the temple by they, I mean, the Jews, they take the temple back and they re-consecrate it for the worship of the one true God of Yahweh. And I hope I'm not getting the timing here wrong. Uh, the, you might want to double check this, but I believe that rebellion, it ends right after the Feast of Tabernacles, or when the Feast of Tabernacles would have happened. Uh, well, either right after or right before, but essentially it's kind of right there, right with the Feast of Tabernacles. So they don't get to celebrate that feast, but then they celebrate this other feast, the, the uh, Feast of Lights or the Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah, whatever you want to call it. Um, and this becomes a tradition that is celebrated to this day. Now, what is relevant about this feast for our purposes uh, number one, it is during the winter time, so it would not have been as well attended as the Feast of Tabernacles, just because you know it's difficult to travel in the winter time, so probably not as many people made it. Two, it is not actually celebrating something of religious significance. Uh, it is really celebrating something more political. It was a political liberation of Israel. Now, you could say, of course, that it has some religious significance because it was a rededication or rather a re-consecration of the temple. So sure, I, I mean, I fully grant that, but that's not the main purpose of the feast. It was a political rebellion. Um, and because it was cold, uh, you, you will see that in the text, they meet at a portico or a porch or, you know, a covered patio. Of course, that makes sense. It was cold. It would have been windy. People wouldn't be kind of indoors or, or as sheltered from the elements as they can be. Um, one last note on the Feast of Dedication is that because the Feast of Dedication had this more overt political element, when the leaders ask Jesus, are you the Christ? It is very likely that particularly in this conversation, what they have in mind is something political. We've discussed this in the past, how the Jews expected a political king, a political figure. Um, that you know, not only do we get that sense in, in the rest of the gospel, but I would say particularly in this scene, that is something they likely have in mind. Like, hey, are you going to lead the rebellion? Are you going to free us from the Romans? Well, that being said, then um, 
let's let's get to the rest of the text. And Matt, I don't know if you want to uh, announce questions, and then I'll finish the text. Sure. As usual, guys, if you have a question, point of discussion, anything you'd like to talk about, just type the word question in the chat, and uh, I will be happy to bring you in as soon as Robert is finished up. All right. So the last little bit that I have here is, first of all, the, the Jews ask Jesus, hey, who are you? And of course, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. They, they say, hey, why do you keep us in suspense? Are you the Christ? And I think that one of the things that, that should come to our mind when we see that question just posed so directly to Jesus is this idea of the messianic secret. What is, what is the messianic secret? Um, some, in some contexts, this will refer to actually a non-Christian idea, and in some contexts, this will refer to a Christian idea. Let me tell you what I mean by that. This actually comes from what I think could be called high uh, criticism of the Bible. By high, I mean as opposed to low textual criticism, um, which there was a scholar back in uh, the very early 1900s that said, you know, in the gospel of Mark, it seems like Jesus is always hiding who he really is. And so this guy goes on to actually postulate that Jesus did not believe himself to be the Messiah. This was something that was kind of added after the fact. Uh, this is a very difficult argument to make, even if you, even if you're not Christian, even if you are wanting to attack Christianity, because first of all, you would have to leave the gospel of John out, right? And the, and the gospel of John is absolutely clear, but it really and, and forgive me for not spending more time on this. We could do this one day if people are interested. Even in the other three Gospels, Jesus makes it very clear who he is. Um, and, you know, well, we could go into that. But that's the theory. That's, what the, that's where this idea of the Messianic secret comes from. Now, there is some Christian agreement with this theory. Because as a Christian, of course, we would readily admit that Jesus is trying to actually stay hidden hidden, particularly in the gospel of Mark, um, up until kind of a certain point in the story. Now, by no means is this because Jesus now believed himself to be the Messiah. It's because Jesus had stuff to do, right? The story had to go a certain way. He couldn't get killed day one. And I'm sorry, this, this is not funny. I'm sorry that I'm smiling. It's just kind of silly to say it out loud this way. But yeah, like Jesus had a mission. He had stuff to do. And he had to teach certain things, say certain things. And then, yes, he was going to the cross, but there was a plan here. So to keep everything going according to plan, Jesus does conceal his identity to some extent, some of the time, um, not to a full extent all the time. That really would be an exaggeration. Well, the question is, then, do we see that messianic secret in the Gospel of John? And yeah, to some extent, we do see that. Uh, Jesus speaks sometimes in cryptic ways, right? He, he will refer to himself or he will talk about things like being born from above or he is the living water or he is the bread from heaven. And so he speaks in these ways that would, you know, to some extent conceal who he is. Um, now, in this passage, Jesus actually kind of comes out and says it, right? He says that the Father and I are one. Uh, uh, I know that I'm almost out of time here, so just one more minute and I'll finish this. Um, when, when Jesus says that, it is important that in the Greek, 
when he says that father and I are one, that one is in is neuter, it's not masculine. So to make it clear, instead of him saying the father and I are one man, which is what would imply if the one was masculine, um, it is really more like saying the father and I are one thing, which is implied by the one being neuter. Okay. So you see there's still two persons, but one being. And the last thing I'm going to discuss is just like the, the last bit in chapter 10, which is very cryptic, I think. Uh, by cryptic, I mean, it's, it's very hard to understand. He goes into this whole thing about the Old Testament says that you are gods. Why are you criticizing me for saying this? Of course, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. Um, well, and I, I'll make this brief. Jesus is making a classic uh, Jewish type argument. It, this argument is the quote, how much more type of argument. And I, we've discussed this in the past. The, the argument will say, hey, if this characteristic applies to X, how much more does it apply to Y? Or you know, just for whatever reason. So in short, the argument that Jesus is making is the following. He says, your scriptures, no, notice he actually says your law. Now, does this mean that Jesus is distancing himself from the Old Testament? Not at all. What he's pointing out is you guys already concede this premise. That that's what he's doing. Saying your scripture uses the term God for people who merely received the word of God. Now, I did not merely receive the word of God. God set me apart and sent me. Right, those are those are actually the characteristics that Jesus highlights in this very chapter. Now, us, the readers, we're thinking of an even more powerful argument. Right, we're saying Jesus did not just receive the word; he is the word. But uh, I'm going to leave that aside for now. That's something that as readers we would know that I did not merely receive the word of God. God set me apart. In other words, I am special. How much more then can I use? the term God, if he was good enough for people who merely received the word. Um, that is the argument that Jesus is making. And what, what Jesus is really doing here is kind of pushing the religious leaders to make a decision. Like, do you really believe that I am special, that I was sent by the Father? Because if you believe that, then the fact that I called myself a God is a non-issue. But if you don't believe that, then yeah, sure, we, we have an issue. He's really pushing, pushing them to a decision point. Um, okay, and with that, forgive me, I went a little bit longer tonight than I normally do. Uh, we can open it up to questions or comments. Sure. Thanks, Robert. I have uh, a question or two potentially, but I'm going to uh, get into uh, the questions of others, and perhaps I'll return to my own toward the end here. But uh, Denby is up first. Denby, if you want to unmute yourself, go ahead. Uh, yeah. Um, so first of all, Robert, thank you for all of that. That was great. I, I actually didn't know that thing about the door, about the the you know the shepherd sleeping in the in the gap. I didn't didn't know that. So I have a question about the 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 quality and degree of metaphor here, because like um, you know, I always thought that they were the I am the good shepherd and I am the door were both equally meta like the same level of meta metaphor, the same degree of metaphor. But I, I see from what you're saying that's not so that he's 
uh, when he says I am the door, he's talking about something the shepherd actually acts as in, in the real world, in real life. So um, when he says I am the good shepherd and I am the door, do, are they, do you think they're, they're meant to, this, uh, to the same degree as a metaphor or is, or is, um, is the I am the door more like um, in practice and in real life sort of thing? I was wondering what you would think, what you say about that. No, I think that they're at the same level. I think that when we understand that imagery, we, we realize that in both metaphors, he is the shepherd, right? Like, like, just like you said, in one in one case, he's acting as the door, but, but I don't think that somehow the fact that he's the shepherd acting as the door that like downgrades the level of, of the metaphor. I think he is bringing to the forefront all the roles that he plays as the shepherd. So as the shepherd, you're going to come through me, so you must believe in me, but I'm also the one in charge of caring for you and feeding you and guiding you to green pastures, uh, you know, calling you by name. All those things are being are brought together when you realize he's the shepherd in both analogies, what would be my take on this. Okay, thank you. I was just wondering because uh, that's one thing that always made me the you know, consider the idea of reading the Bible literally is laughable, you know, because like, you know, he's not literally a shepherd. He's preaching to people. He's not out in the field, tending a flock. You know, it's it's like, you know, you know what I mean? It's sort of like I was, I was quite struck by what you're saying there because, uh, and if you don't want to follow up question then is, does that mean also that uh, in regards to what you're saying about the, the view of the upper class, the, the Pharisees about shepherds, is he trying to needle them uh, by saying so, that, do you think? Uh, now, here, of course, this is just my opinion, so take this with a gigantic grain of salt. But yes, I, I think mm. that in this uh, in this conversation, you see Jesus consistently kind of needling them, and this is one more case. Because Jesus could have used a different imagery. You know, he could have used a different example. He could have said, I am the king or I am the scholar, you know, like some imagery that the elite would have respected more, but instead he goes back to, I am the shepherd. And I think, yeah, I think that, that he is trying to needle them a little bit more. Now, again, that's my take, you know, take it or leave it. All right. Thank you, Tenby. Appreciate it. Uh, Chris is up next. Chris, go ahead and unmute yourself. You're ready. Hi, can you hear me okay? Yes, sir. So, uh, Robert, I, I really appreciate the lesson, as, as always, and I especially like the, the, the attention you gave to who was Jesus uh, supposed to be a Messiah for? In other words, was it going to be just the Jews, or was it going to be these, these other nations? And, and in particular, you mentioned you know, how the, the Gentiles were sort of grafted in. And in particular, if, if I could, I'd like to just read two just real quick verses that I think bear on that. One of them is in Genesis chapter 22. So very early in the Bible, uh, this has to do with Abraham. God says, I will sure, surely bless you and will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So there's one place where, and we know that 
this this seed of Abraham is going to lead to Jesus. And the other thing uh, after the book of John, the, the next book is Acts. And this is right after this is kind of a pivotal moment right after the right at the ascension. But he tells his uh, disciples. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So this plan was always for mankind ever since the Garden of Eden, ever since Adam and Eve. And, and, and Jesus in particular said it's going to radiate out, right? It's going to start here in Jerusalem. It's going to radiate out. But one of the things that I really love is, is the fact the Jewish nation was kind of a means to an end. You know, it, the Bible doesn't, the, even the, the Bible that they read, their, their Torah and Talmud, it doesn't begin with the Jewish nation. And, and of course, as we take the New Testament, it doesn't end with the Jewish nation. So anyway, I just wanted to throw that, that out there. Yeah, thank you very much. That's excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Let's see. I have one written question here. Uh, Eric asks, would you agree for both of us? He asks, uh, would you agree that men are shepherds and women are sheep? Um, well, of course I'm the wrong guy to ask from a biblical perspective, but I think in my experience by nature, more often than not, uh, men are satisfied in a leadership role. Women are satisfied, uh, through male leadership. It's not an always thing, but sort of as a general rule. That said, um, in my personal experience is not the point of this uh, whole exercise. So, Robert, I don't know if, well, one, do you have an opinion on that? And two, is there a more biblical take on that topic? Well, I, I would not use that language to describe men and women because in the parables that include or that involve sheep and a shepherd, a sheep clearly refer to people to all people you know male or female so i i would not use that language specifically now if your question is is a little broader and is hey are men and women do they have different roles uh, really biblically you're, you're going to find two potential views one is called egalitarianism which would say men and women uh, have no functional distinction and notice that i'm, I'm saying functional Every Christian believes that men and women have the same ontological value, right? One is more valuable than the other. That No one believes that. That's nonsense when people accuse Christians of believing that. Well, the other view would be complementarianism, which, would, which does hold that there are different functional roles for men and women. And um, this is a very interesting debate. It really doesn't hinge on this passage. So I, I'm not going to go into further depth on that but if you guys want to talk about it more some other day i know we only have like eight minutes today <laughs> remaining but we can absolutely talk about egalitarianism versus complementarianism okay thanks eric and uh thanks robert ricky also has a question ricky if you're ready go ahead and unmute yourself oh uh, hello robert thanks for the study uh the question i had was in uh, in verse three it refers to doorkeeper so what I was wondering is that uh, doorkeeper is—is is it speaking about uh, uh, John the Baptist, or is it speaking about the Old Testament prophets, the laws, or the verses that uh, that speak about uh, Jesus coming the way he 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 came to Israel and uh, led his ministry? 
today. Um, well, certainly there's been no shortage of people speculating who the doorkeeper is, but I think, and this is again, not just my opinion that I think there's, there's solid support behind what I'm about to say, but I don't actually think that the doorkeeper represents anyone. I think that it's just part of the, it's kind of a required part of the story of the example, but in a parable, you should not expect a one-to-one -one relation to things. So not every element in a parable has to represent something in real life. Parables normally have only one message, right? Like one central core message. Um, and I think sometimes, particularly pastors do this, and forgive me if you're a pastor, I don't mean to overly criticize you, but they tend to read too much into a parable. And it's like, nope, it's got this one central message. So I believe the doorkeeper does not represent anyone in reality. There's not a one-to-one -one relation. Uh, what it does is it creates this image that when Jesus comes home to the household, he is recognized. That's what he's doing. The doorkeeper lets him in. So it the message that that portrays is this is his household, as opposed to a robber that has to sneak in because it is not his household, you know, the household of the robber. So th that would be my take on that. Okay, thank you, Ricky. Uh, I think we are all caught up on requests to speak. So once again, we do have a few more minutes, guys. So if anybody's looking to add a thought or ask a question, just type question in the chat and I will get to you. Um, the only uh, lingering question I had, and it's not strictly related to this lesson, and it's probably something that you covered week one. So you're going to furrow your brow at me for <laughs> asking about things we've already discussed. But when you say high versus low textual criticism, can you remind me what that distinction is? I'm sure you talked about it before, but. Well, no, I don't think that I actually went into depth on this. So um, okay. when I say low textual criticism, I mean that the kind of criticism that is based on looking at all the available manuscripts and trying to determine what the text actually said, and it's very much you know, a science or, or close to a science anyways, where, where, right. You look at a manuscript, you, you decide how reliable it is from how, how many mistakes are included in it. Uh, you look at how old it is and all that. And then you compare with all the other ones decide, okay, maybe this one word is not original in the text. Okay. That's what low textual criticism refers to. Um, and I think that in my opinion, my opinion, I think Christians should be for that kind of criticism. They should not shy away from it. High textual criticism is, and I'm going to maybe do, mischaracterize it a little bit just because I don't have a formal definition in front of me, but it is effectively the idea that th there, it, it begins from the assumption that there are no supernatural events, including in this text. And so whenever we encounter anything supernatural, it cannot be true. It must have been a later adaptation. So people who employ higher criticism, for example, they would look at uh, Jesus healing the blind man, for example, like we saw in chapter nine. And they would say, well, that clearly didn't happen because miracles are impossible. So how would the text ever get to that point? And then they would begin to speculate and say, well, probably, um, you know, some later scribe was trying to make Jesus appear 
like he had powers and there was already a myth going around in the greek world that some emperor had healed somebody's blindness so the scribe borrowed from that myth and inserted it here and they explain every supernatural event in the bible with these other theories uh but again mm. because they uh, they assume that the bible cannot be correct okay Hi high and low is sort of a weird way to describe those to me to me it like I interpret a, like a value assignment to that. This one's better or worse than the other. Really, I, if I understand what you're talking about is uh, in, like an analysis of the integrity of the text, I suppose, versus an analysis of or an explanation of the content itself. Yes, I, I think uh, that's a great way of putting it. Okay, uh, interesting. All right, thank you for clarifying. We do have a couple minutes left and Brian uh, has a, a comment. So Brian, go ahead and unmute yourself. Uh, thanks, Matt. I just I just wanted to follow up on Robert's uh, point. <clears throat> uh, excuse me. Yeah, uh, lower criticism it, it tends to deal with just the the text itself. What he said about higher criticism is is generally true descriptively. It's not it, higher criticism isn't necessarily anti supernatural, although that's that's the trend that kind of drive that is kind of driven the the field for the past hundred and fifty years. Higher criticism just deals with questions like who wrote the text and what order were they written, which where what were their sources? Uh, you don't necessarily have to have a an anti supernatural bias for that, although that has that presupposition has kind of dominated the field. Um, there's a scholar na named Richard Bauckham who wrote a book uh, in 2008, I think, called uh, Jesus and the eyewitnesses. He's a believer. Um, it's it's essential. It's it's an example of biblical higher criticism that is done by a believer. Um, in fact, every Christian, actually every person, should read that book. He kind of uh, refutes the uh, the the trend that you're talking about is known as form criticism, and it presupposes uh, merely human authorship. Um, and his book kind of addresses that. But anyway, I just thought that was that a, a point that was worth uh, worth bringing up. Yeah, thank you for uh, the clarification on that as well. I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Brian. Thank you, Brian, for cleaning that up. I knew that I wasn't getting the definition quite right. And so thank you for. Yeah, and it, it's 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 not something people tend to have uh, right in front of them a lot or. I'm kind of a dork and stay home and fixate on this stuff. So anyway, thanks. Thanks, Brian. Thank okay. One minute early. Look at that. Almost perfectly timed. Uh, did you have any closing thoughts, Robert? Uh, no, no. Well, I guess we are halfway there, guys. We're halfway mm. through the gospel of John. And I was just going to thank everybody for sticking with the Bible study so far. I hope that it's been worthwhile, you know, and we'll continue pressing on. Sure. And thank you for the lessons. And, and as we've been doing this since the start of June, you know, I've noticed a, a nice, good, stable group that tends to hang around. And that's, that's nice to see. Um, you know, that, that, that tells me that people are invested in, uh, part, in the participation and the product and, and that's cool. So thank you guys for, um, for making this a success and for coming along with me on this, uh, this journey to figure out uh, or try to learn as much about this topic as I as I can, because as I'm sure you can tell, it's more or less my first exposure to it, at least as an adult. So 
thanks for being a part of that. And uh, as usual, we'll be back next Saturday night, 8 p.m. Eastern time. Have a great week in between.